listening to the Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. My name is Michael Cleary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We are both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. And if you would like to ask a question or give us some feedback, you can reach out to us at this email address. It's currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com, currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. We answer listener questions at the end of every every episode. And the topic of today's episode is all things related to Christianity, politics, Christian nationalism, mm. theonomy, and other boogeymen. Mm. So, Wade, I'll kick it over to you to get us going. What you got for us today? This one should not be controversial at all. Not at all. All right, well, we hope you know us well enough now uh, to know that we're not we're not trolling. We're not trying to be controversial here. Yeah, we're not shock the, jocks. Right. The point of doing this podcast, though, is to help you see, I mean, like the tagline says, to help you see, think, live biblically in particular areas in which it's hard to do so right now. Yeah. Um, sorry, did you have something you wanted to say? No, no. no there, there's, there's just, uh, there's a deficiency. King's Domain, the ministry this podcast is housed under, it identifies that there's a deficiency of uh, clear Christian thought in issues of sexuality, uh, political engagement. You know, how do I vote? Um, yeah. How, how, how do I think about who I vote for? How do I think about the person who's in office? These sorts of areas. And so we're, 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 we're targeting those areas by design, and the design is not to merely get you to... It's not clickbait. Yeah. It's we see a particular vitamin that most Christians are deficient in. Yeah, contrary to what people think, uh, I don't love controversy for myself. I, I don't enjoy that, but but right. whenever you're addressing important issues, it's going to be inevitable. Anytime you talk into a microphone and distribute it on the internet, um, people will have a reaction to it, but that's not our goal. Correct. Neither of us like uh, is is energized by that kind of thing. But we love our church. We love the Christians we know. We love the Christians we grew up around. We we love Christianity and the church universal. And so we're we're trying to speak uh, clearly about areas where the church needs to hear specific things and even unbelievers. All right. Yeah. Enough said there. Um, let me start with a, a little bit of a taste of crazy. Uh, it's not. It's not the craziest thing in the world. And I taste of disagreement, taste of disagreement. There we go. That's better. (laughs) Uh, so this is an article called from Christianity today called Christianity is not necessary for democracy. We'll have the link in the show notes. It's free. If you create an account at Christianity today, you don't have to pay for the account, but if you create it, they'll give you the whole article for free. Um, so this is written by a man named Paul D. Miller. That is not the Paul E. Miller who wrote the prayer, uh, the, the praying life or something that I know a lot of people in our circles read. It's a different guy. Uh, I thank him for his service. He fought in Afghanistan, I believe. Yeah, veteran of the war in Afghanistan. And he's a fellow at the ERLC, which is an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, kind of a Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ethics ad- and Religious Liberty Council? Commission. Commission. Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Right. Russell so, Moore used to head that up. Yes, he did, uh, who we have substantial disagreements with in, in worldview and political theory and things like that, um, and just at, approach to uh, preaching the gospel in, yeah. in America. Um, but more like this guy, I'm sure is you know, a good man. I have nothing against this guy, but uh, his his article here, the, the argument that he makes is one that I, I don't want you, Christian, to be persuaded by. Uh, So, again, it's called Christianity is Not Necessary for Democracy. That's the title. I'm not even going to engage the title at the moment because I guess in theory that's probably true. Like, historically, the ancient Greeks had a form of a democracy and did not know Jesus. 
I mean, would um, you say Iraq has a form of democracy right now? Uh, I mean, I think they have an elected legislature and, you know, they're an Islamic. Um, yeah. So, so the form of government does not require a majority of or even a single person in the society to be a Christian. But that's not really what anybody on my side of this uh, Christian political engagement debate would would yeah. say we're not saying that like until jesus came there were no democracies right right, right. um so it's, it's kind of a fault it's kind of a false flag or a red herring that's not actually what what i would say or what anybody i know of has said instead and and i'll, I'll comment on this as we go but basically my point would be you cannot account for the objective realities that democracy assumes without yahweh okay so democracy, democratic republics, all the things we enjoy in Western society, like freedom of the press, freedom of religion, um, you know, laws against stealing, like private property as a right, that all of these things assume human beings have value and dignity and worth. Yeah. But apart from Yahweh, apart from the God of Jesus Christ, apart from the Bible, you cannot account for that assumption. Yeah. That is my argument and the argument of guys like Greg Bonson or... So on what basis do we have value? Exactly. If, if you do not assume that Yahweh made the world and made us in his image, then I have no inherent rights. I'm yeah. just a walking hominid that happens to talk. Why do I have any more rights than an orangutan that can't talk? Yeah, especially if you're coming from a Darwinian uh, worldview. Exactly. It's like there is... They would argue that... Simply because we are the most highly evolved of all creatures, but then you have people with mental illnesses or exactly. that are you know developmentally disabled, things like that. It's like, well, is it because they have less intelligence or less capability? Does that make them less valuable? Well, we would say, no, that does not mean that. However, we can say that based on our theology, whereas Correct. Darwinists can't. We have grounding for it. We have an actual coat rack we can hang that coat on. But the secularist, the person who doesn't want Christianity to be the grounding or the God of Jesus Christ to be the grounding, they're trying to hang that coat in midair. Yeah. They're trying to hang the coat of human dignity just on nothing. Yeah, because we live in a society that Christianity built, or at least built on the presuppositions and underpinnings of Christianity. Right. And then we want to say the, our foundation is no longer applicable. Mm -hmm. It's like sawing off a limb that you're sitting on. It's exactly right. You don't need these Christian assumptions to have this democratic republic. Well, without the Christian assumptions, there's no reason to want a democratic republic. That's right. <laughs> um, so let me, but let me go through some of the points here in the article. So one paragraph, he says, I can point out several examples of non-Christian or fairly new Christian societies that are, in fact, democracies. For instance, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, South Africa, Botswana. Uh, you get the point. He names a handful. These African, Asian, and Oceanic societies are all democracies that Freedom House ranked as free in 2022 for their recognition and protection of human rights. Okay. So he says, here's these free countries— and they didn't need Christianity to become free. But what's the assumption there? That freedom is good. Yeah. And I'm saying Christianity, the God who actually made the world and his actual son, can inform us and tell us why freedom is good. Yeah. But an agnostic constitution or an agnostic worldview or an atheistic worldview has no way of telling us why freedom's good. Why is freedom good? Yeah. Well, it's like you're reading this. It, it's saying like we're going to use a Christian measuring stick, right, to measure a Christian value, and lo and behold, all these countries measure somewhat well mm -hmm. on a 
Christian scale of freedom, which yes. is a value that Christianity provides. You can see that in Galatians yep. 5 and Jesus uh, himself, mm-hmm. the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. These are principles that are embedded in Christianity. They are the fruit of the Christian uh, theology. And so we're saying, we're, we're, we're assuming a, a standard of goodness to make this argument, but he's saying that we don't need the standard. Right. To, to be able to maintain it. He uses the standard without acknowledging the, the standard itself. The standard is Christianity. The standard is the God of Christianity. So you can't use that without acknowledging it. I mean, you can. It's a free country because we're... <laughs> because It's we're... a free country because of our Christian history. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's not logically coherent to, uh, to use the standard and then refuse to... But even logical it. coherence is a value. Yes, correct. That, that, is, that is not mere... It's like, we, why is logical coherence better than illogic? Exactly. And so I, 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 I tweeted this a couple of weeks ago because I was... There was some something in the atheist like sphere had, had crossed my radar. Um, every argument against God assumes his existence. Can you unpack that? Yeah. So when you argue against God, you are arguing, which assumes that there is truth and falsehood. I'm, I, as the arguer opposing you am making a claim that what you said is false and that what I say is true. But what are you assuming there? You're assuming there is this objective, immaterial reality called truth that you can discern and know with mm-hmm. certainty, enough certainty to argue your point. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're an atheist. There is nothing immaterial. Yeah. And how do you know anything objectively? You could yeah. be a brain in a vat. Right. So yeah, that's yeah. the... It's, it's the... The atheist assumes that there are laws of logic, which are immaterial, universal, binding realities. Well, he's an atheist. He only believes in the material. He believes in objective truth, even though he can't account for why he would know it or where it's stashed in this purely material universe. Yeah. You know, right. and, and it assumes that truth is something that is a shared value between us and that we right. should both seek it. And right. truth should prevail over anyone's personal and subjective opinion. Right. So that's... so. I bring that up to say, just as every argument against God assumes his existence to even make the argument, similarly here, every argument, uh, every Christian argument, every argument made by a Christian uh, against the necessity of the God of Jesus Christ for good governance assumes the mm-hmm. standard of that God of Jesus Christ. like. You're you're assuming the very thing that you don't want to be true. Yeah, and even even in the title, we're assuming democracy is the preferred form of government. Right. right. And so, what? Why is it preferred? Why is it good? Well, because it honors exactly. individuals. Exactly. Why do we honor individuals? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, just a couple more paragraphs. Um, the British and American Republicans of the 17th and 18th centuries, he says, were essentially the first generation of Christians to argue that Christianity and self-government were compatible. As it happens, I think that they were right, he says, but it would not threaten my faith if they were wrong. And I wrote in the margins here of my, my copy, great, it wouldn't threaten your, fa- your faith, but people don't have value because you say so. They have value because Yahweh says so. So again, assuming there that um, that self governance uh, is is good is is assuming the Christian worldview that he doesn't want to be necessary for governance. Um, and then just just one more paragraph here. He says it may be a happy side effect after all. Godliness has value for all things. 
uh, Christianity may have the happy side effect of uh, benefiting society. Holding promise for both present life and life to come. He's quoting 1 Timothy 4.8. And so it's entirely plausible that Christianity has positive unintended consequences that make sustaining democracy easier. But Jesus did not become incarnate to make possible the First Amendment or inspire the U.S. Constitution. That last sentence is is a straw man of straw men. Yeah. Nobody I know actually think, I mean, come on, that Jesus inspired the U.S. Constitution or became incarnate to make possible the First Amendment? Who I actually? mean, there's so many things that you could put there. Like, Jesus didn't become incarnate to enable you to write articles for Christianity today. Yeah, great it's point. It's like just, right. what does that even mean? Right. It's a meaningless nonsense. Jesus argument. didn't become incarnate for you to pay your taxes or for you to go the speed limit. or for you, I mean, clearly, okay, great, yes, in principle, we understand that. But... The First Amendment is good, and he knows it's good because he's using the objective standard of the God who exists, not the subjective standard of his own opinion. Yeah. Uh, so we, we just want to, what I would argue for, is explicitly doing what he is implicitly doing. I want, and, and we'll get to this at some point here in this episode, but cards on the table now, I want the civil government all the way from, from president on down to explicitly acknowledge the standard of the God of Jesus Christ, that mm-hmm. he is the standard for right and wrong, not merely to stumble upon it or to do it, but not say why. So so you would say, let's say you have uh, country A and country B. Both countries say murder is wrong. Mm-hmm. You would prefer a world in which country, like the country says murder is wrong because God says so, and not merely because they arrived at that conclusion as something socially expedient. Correct. Because if you just do it because of social expedience, then inevitably you're going to end up with something, some version of the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. Hitler could say, apart from, because he's denying the objective standard in the 66 books of the Bible and the God of Jesus Christ, he could say, it's not murder for me to throw Jews into an oven in Auschwitz or Dachau. That's yeah. not murder, or that's not immoral. Well, I mean, that was uh, Thanos' thing. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the Avengers. Where I haven't like, seen well, it, but I've read the like the summary of the plot. Yeah. Doesn't he kill half the universe? Yeah, or he's something? like, I'm, I'm, in order for he he's he's presented as a at least he th- he sees himself as a savior figure, yeah. and it's like I want to save the you know the perpetuation of this universe and of the human species by killing half of them, right? In order to, and know. if we if we deny any objective. God grounded moral standard, how can you actually oppose that? You're basically always going to be, um, you're going to place your culture and your laws and your government at the subservience of the majority. Yeah. You get 51% of the people who say it is, it's right to kidnap black people, bring them over here on ships and put them in chains. Then, yeah. from what objective standpoint can you criticize that or overturn it? Well, it's just wrong. Exactly. So, Says who? Oh, we just know we know. It's just wrong. We know it's wrong. You just, you know it's wrong. Exactly. We all know it's wrong. So everything becomes either subjective or that kind of gobbledygook unless you ground it in the God of Jesus Christ. Can you define gobbledygook? Um, It's an, it's an ancient Sumerian word meaning. Let's uh, see how creative you are on the fly. Make up a joke. um, Well, I was thinking like, (laughs) I can't, there's certain words I can't say here. So the, the, the human excrement that goes into a latrine. (laughs) That's the the Sumerian word for that is God. No, I have no gobbledygook. All right, All right. Um, but now what I'd like to do, so I'll, I'm going to give the bumper sticker statement, and then I'm going to I'm going to send it back over to Michael to drive the bus here a bit because you just so happened to preach a sermon on this, and of course that kind of was the the catalyst for us wanting to do the episode now. 
but we had had poli- we had had political engagement mm-hmm. on the the table at some point here to get into. So here's the bumper sticker statement, and then Michael will um, give us some some theology to to underpin it. This the lay of the land. The bumper stick, sticker statement is: the state is ordained by God for specific purpose purposes. Its authority is real, but not final. So the state, the government. Uh, President Biden, the presidency, the governorship yeah. of your state, the mayor, the the township trustees of your local municipality, they are ordained by God for specific purposes. They have real authority, but they do not have final authority. Yeah. All right, can you give us some uh some of the the hot the hot takes from your sermon? Sure, sure. So yeah, I preached a sermon on this this past Sunday. The the text was uh paying taxes to Caesar. So uh, you're probably familiar with the story where the Jews tried to trap Jesus. So they, uh, they say, hey, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, well, bring me a denarius. And he said, Who's in, whose likeness is on it? And they said, well, this is Caesar. And then he says famously, then render to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God's. Um, that, this text is really um, pivotal, crucial, central to Christian theology and thought about the um, Political theology, and the uh, the issue here is 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 essentially the the limitation yet legitimacy of the civil government, civil magistrate. So same idea that you communicated there. There's a real authority, but that authority is not final. Um, the way that I presented it on Sunday um, is that the the authority of the civil magistrate is legitimate, but it is limited, mm. um, and it's. This is because its legitimacy is derived from God. God says, you know, uh, and we'll get into the scriptures in a moment on this, that God, you know, uh, ordains and assigns authorities as a good thing that um, operates under his ultimate authority and under his jurisdiction. And then the limitations of civil magistrates are under his authority because he assigned the, those limits as well. Um, so I, I, I uh, did a little bit of political theology in my sermon, and I quoted London Baptist Confession of Faith, and this is chapter 24, but um, this is nearly word-for-word identical mm-hmm. to Westminster Confession of Faith um, and Savoy. Um, you know, all these are, both of the, uh, all three of these are, you know, they go back. Three, three hundred, three thirty, three hundred thirty years. Yeah, Westminster is almost 400 years. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, what? Uh, 1640 something. Uh, see, 1689 is London. Yeah, so I thought Westminster was like 1642 or something like that. Yeah. Either way, we're talking, yeah, not not yesterday. Yeah, so different continent, different century. Here's what it, here's London Baptist Confession of Faith. We start with the authority of God. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him and over the people. So God of supreme authority, he ordains human civil authorities to be under God, under him, and over the people for his own glory and the public good. It continues, for this purpose, he has armed them with the authority to use force, referring to the sword, Mm -hmm. to do two things, to defend and encourage those who do good and to punish evildoers. And climate change. Nah, you're. That's not in the 1689. It's it's not in there, man. It's okay. not in there. Okay. I mean, uh, maybe if there's a 2023 update. Okay. But uh, we should work on that. 
So um, the summary of the Bible, that, that paragraph is a summary of the Bible's teaching on the human, human authority, human government. So the limitations instituted by God, or excuse me, the legitimacy instituted by God, limitations is that there is a primary duty, and that's spelled out here in London Baptist, and we'll show you scriptures to demonstrate this. It is to promote the good and punish evil. Okay. That and so you know, at, you know, broadly defined, you could you could as a uh, as a summary word, that, mm. you say that's justice. That is the work of justice in civil society. And so it assumes, like we are assuming, like everyone assumes, but a Christian can account for. It assumes objective good and objective evil, because the state yeah. is to do this and not that. It's that's to right. Promote going right and not left. It's to promote good and, I mean, like these are these are these are not just like opinions yep. good and evil are fixed in something sturdy yeah yeah and that's 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 right where we're headed because like the that it, it begs the question what is the definition of good and evil mm-hmm. london baptist assumes that we are able to define good and evil mm-hmm. and of course in the rest of the the document it does so but in, in this instance we have to ask what is the standard of right and wrong that rulers are expected to implement because every ruler is going to rule according to some standard. Now it could be their fickle, capricious, arbitrary mm-hmm. standard that changes from one day to the next, or it could be if they're a good ruler, it could be according to some transcendent standard mm-hmm. that exists outside of them and they are subject to it and implementing it. Um, and that's, that is the thing that, that is the, the real issue at play here because every ruler is going to rule according to some standard. And right. so we want just laws. We want justice. We want goodness promoted. We want evil punished. But it has to be done according to some standard. It can't just be however that guy feels on that day. Mm-hmm. So um, now that, that doesn't mean that the ruler has to be a Christian. Um, and we'll get into this in a bit, but it's like the rule of law is a, that is a, a bedrock principle of you know just Western societies that goes back to the beginning, and I would say it goes back to the Garden of Eden, where God yeah. did not follow Adam and Eve around all day long and tell them, "Don't do this." No, you can go over there. All right, next, go over here. No, He gave them freedom, and He kind of stands back and enables them to explore the garden, to operate freely. He said, "You can eat whatever tree you want," but He did impose one restriction, and that's a law. Mm-hmm. He did not impose a restriction in the moment saying, hey, hey, tap him on the shoulder. Don't eat that tree. No, he said, that's the tree right over there. You see the one, that one tree right there? Don't eat from that tree. That's law. And then God gave them freedom to operate within the garden, and they were ruled by the law. And, of course, they failed. And whenever they failed, then you have injustice and evil that entered into the world. But goodness is defined Mm -hmm. as acting in accordance with God's design and creation. Evil is defined as acting against it. So whenever Adam and Eve failed... That's, that's, uh, they, that was not merely sin and wickedness. It was also a, an injustice mm-hmm. that, was, that was committed. So what, what I've observed and Wade and I have talked about, we've discussed on this podcast, where we are in 2023 is we're in a, we're in a place in our society where we've abandoned the law of God right. as the standard that is above our society. And there's a fear, and the, the fear is that, well, you know, if you impose the law of God, then you get theocracy and you have, you know, pastor so-and-so gets to rule, you know, a city or whatever. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that. And we want to explain that. But this is important because if you don't have a God above your system, then your system is your God. Mm-hmm. And that's what Francis Schaeffer warned about back in the 80s. You end up with tyranny 
because you don't have a system, a standard that everybody agrees to. So we end up just making it up as you go. That's why you have Pharaoh throwing the baby boys in the, into the Nile, because he's God. You have Nebuchadnezzar ordering people to bow down and pray to the golden image because he's making it up as though he's God. Right. Book of Judges. And in our day, um, we, well, I mean, historically, you mentioned slavery earlier mm-hmm. as a, something that was an unjust law. It was, it was an evil, a moral evil that was legal. Right. Same thing with abortion. It's a moral outrage, but it is legal. And we are saying, let's all explicitly name the standard by which we know it's evil. Exactly. That's right. Let's not just kind of like, I don't know, it just makes me feel bad. No, it's evil because Yahweh made people in his image, therefore throwing them in the bottom of a ship and treating them like cattle is evil. That's evil. And I would I would say a great injustice was done in our society, and it's it's ironic the way it's discussed. But Obergefell, which is the Supreme Court decision that created uh, a new category of marriage, homosexual marriage, mm-hmm. in 2015, that is an injustice because it redefined something that God had already defined. Correct. So the standard, the definition of marriage, is given by God. Therefore, what God has joined together, uh, let no man tear asunder, uh, male and female. He created them in the image of God. So we th- these things are defined in Scripture. Correct. But now, when you have two gay men that can be married, or two gay women, or you can have three people, or you can have a single person marry themselves. And uh, my son Isaiah told me this the other day. He said that's Dennis Rodman did that. Uh, <laughs> back in the, I don't know if it was back in the nineties. I mean, he's at the cutting edge of everything. Yeah. Um, lies are always an injustice because lies deceive people at the expense of the truth. So they make mm-hmm. a victim of a person at the expense of the truth, uh, and calling two men a marriage is a lie. It doesn't change reality. Reality can't be changed, mm-hmm. but it deceives people about reality. It makes That's them right. think that reality has altered. And so now they're going to follow that path wherever it leads, mm-hmm. whatever pain it brings, whatever dishonor it brings upon God and human race, they're going to follow that path that you just deceptively told them yeah. was real, was something that that was mm-hmm. actual and uh, existed in God's real created order, and it doesn't. Right. Marriage is not two dudes. It never will be two dudes. Yeah, that it's not a marriage. Right now, it can be. We can give it a legal status, and everybody can start calling it marriage. But as far as what marriage actually is, it it is not a marriage. Right, and. This is really this matters not not as some abstract political theory. This matters because if a system and I'm and by system I'm talking about a government or mm. a society. If a system does not acknowledge or submit to God, then the system becomes God. Right, and that's a and that God is always a tyrant. So you end up with human dictators right. who are imposing human norms, human standards that don't agree with one another. And it, it leads to greater chaos, greater anarchy, greater pain. You have the coercive power of the sword being used to force compliance to unrestrained autocratic decrees. Mm-hmm. And that, that government has power over everything. And then the, the, the great irony is that whenever there are Christians who will point to Romans 13 without doing the theological work of of really establishing some sort of whole Bible theology of politics and just proof text Romans 13 and assume what anything and everything that the government says to do, I must do. And so we're saying, I'm going to, as my duty to God, 
submit to the government that is telling me to do something unjust. Correct. By that logic, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sinned yep. when they did not bow to the golden idol. And Corrie Ten Boom sinned when she and her family hid Jews from the Nazis and lied when they asked, where are the Jews? That's right. Yeah. And because so the, it's, states, it's injustice. Yeah, exactly. It, it will always lead to, uh, that kind of deception will always lead to human carnage. And it'll, I mean, we have blasphemy laws right now that are affecting the livelihood of real people. People are being uh, fired or in, in some countries jailed for not celebrating sodomy and I mean, same-sex sin and all these different um, perversions that are permeating our, our culture right now. I just saw the Toronto Blue Jays pitcher. Did you, did you see this? I'm a baseball fan. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, so he had to come out. I mean, it looked like it. I watched the video of him apologizing for sharing something about the Target boycott yeah. <laughs> and sharing something about the uh, Bud Light boycott. He, like, shared a video or something, and in the 30-second clip of him in front of the dugout apologizing... It looked like one of those videos you used to see from North Korea where mm. like uh, somebody like at gunpoint. Like the terrorist point, videos? No, like um, <laughs> whenever a communist dictatorship will, will trot a guy out who's been in prison for a while as a political prisoner mm. and they've gotten the guy through bludgeoning him and poisoning him and keeping him in a dark room for however many months, whenever they get the guy to say, I sinned against the great republic of North Korea and fully confess and repent of my... <laughs> like that's how the guy looked. The guy yeah. looked like he had been... I just I just pulled this up here. I mean, it's like the the apology video is so boilerplate. Yeah. Uh, so like, or so here's what he said. I recognize yesterday I made a post that was hurtful mm. to the pride community. Mm, community. Some sophistry there, mm -hmm. which includes friends of mine and close family members of mine. I am truly sorry for that. I just spoke with my teammates and shared with them my actions yesterday. I apologized with them, and as of right now, I am using the Blue Jays resources to better educate myself, and to make better decisions. Educate forward. and better. So both of those assume there's there's the standard. There's a moral standard there. There's and a right and wrong. It. Yep. So uh, Bass, what was his first name? Uh, Kevin, I think maybe. T Kevin or Tyler. He's not uh, like a... He's, Anthony Bass. Anthony, okay. He's not like a great uh, pitcher. I think he's got like a lifetime ERA of like 4.5. So, I mean, he's not like, you know, some... Yeah. But it was... Uh, it was it was really unnerving to see that guy just stand there with that like, yeah, that looked like he'd just been hit by a Mack truck. Yeah, and th but that is the vigilante mob justice that we have in our. I mean, it's a. Um, I, I want to call it a lynching, and I mean that. I, I know in in saying that that will sound like there's disrespect towards those who were truly lynched, and it, it, I don't mean that in, in any disrespect, in that sense. Yeah, but it is it is the moral equivalent in the sense that you have a mob mob rule mm -hmm. where a mob of people were offended at what you said because you violated a norm and a standard that um, we are presuppositionally mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> assuming is the righteous moral standard. You violated it. You will pay the price. And their penalty is social ostracization. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can say that word right. Ostr is it ostracization? Ostracizing. Ostracization, right? Where, <laughs> but I mean that's that's yeah. what he 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 paid a social cost of public humiliation yeah. for. And you know. is it that out of the realm of possibility? Can we not imagine five years or ten years down the road, should things continue at this breakneck pace down uh, into this into this abyss, a political penalty, a, a, a an actual civil penalty, him yeah. him being fined or jailed? 
for yeah, sharing well, that video. That's not crazy to me to imagine. No, it's not because we see this in Canada. Yeah. Uh, there's a, I'm waiting to have a friend, Michael Thiessen, mm -hmm. who's in, um, he's a friend of ours. He's a church planter in Kentucky, but he's a Canadian refugee. Um, mm -hmm. I'm calling a refugee, um, you know, slightly tongue in cheek, but not slightly. really. I mean, it's slightly. So he was, um, he planted, he was a, a pastor in Canada and during COVID the, the just overbearing draconian type, uh, legal system was oppressing pastors for simply having church services, mm -hmm. even when they complied with every type of restriction, whatever. So it, it got so bad to where um, he moved here and started a church here um, and is still trying to advocate for them legally. But he was, when he was with us, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was showing us this video where uh, there was a, a young man who was 16 years old yeah. who um, simply wanted to protest using what I would assume in Canada would have been a legal right to protest. Mm hmm Boys not using girls' bathrooms. Right. So I'm talking about biological males not going into the girls' bathrooms. He Michael said to... he communicated with law enforcement in advance. Yep. And got and told them, I'm going to be here in this particular area. Yeah. He did everything by the book. Yep. And the police said, you may protest within these. Yep. And he like had like a little area. Yep. And so there were transgender LGBTQ activists that... And I saw, and that's where I saw the video. I mean, this this kid, he's a child. I have a son the same age. Yeah. He's a child. Was bullied and pushed, harassed, uh, like literally like assaulting him, like physically shoving him. Yeah. Um, and he was just trying to walk and stay within the area that he was uh, assigned to. Mm -hmm. Ended up, they, and, and the whole video, he did not act Never raised a fist, never yelled. While never people are screaming, they're yeah, having signs, they're just like, totally verbally assaulting him. Um, police arrest this 16-year-old child for causing a public disturbance. Not the people who were pushing and shoving right. and yelling and swearing. And uh, in one point, I think it was this day, if not, it was another one with this kid burning Bibles. There were people burning I Bibles. I saw that, yeah. So that, I don't, yeah, same way. I don't know if it was the same thing. But, but what Wade and I are saying here is like, they are, the police did not intervene to protect him. Right. The activists were acting on something that they feel is morally right. And this whole scenario is being played out. There are two, not merely, it's not merely here is a, a kid who is trying to demonstrate and people don't like it. Mm -hmm. We have rival legal and moral systems at work. And there is not, there wasn't a, an agreed upon system that is truly just and reflective of God's law that was being implemented there. And so you have a child Demonstrating, exercising his legal right, right was the one that was arrested. The police were exercising or obeying a worldview when they arrested him. Yeah, they were at the very least uh, submitting themselves to the mob, a, a, yep. a Marxist LGBTQ revolution type mob. Uh, so they were at the very least obeying that sort of worldview and the people who were propagating it, or for all I know, could have been in sympathy with it. Mm -hmm. But either way, to think, to just sort of assume that the, the government, the police, the FBI, the, the military are these benign or neutral institutions yeah. that will always simply do that what we, we know what good is. We know what truth is. We know, they're the good guys. Yeah. To assume that uh, is naive. Yeah, and he would have to wonder, am I, are these police men and women going to protect me? Right. And so... I made this comment a moment ago, and I'll, I'll, it's in my notes, so I'll read it again. Without a divine lawgiver, 
and an agreed that it's agreed upon as the standard, we inevitably end up with capricious, arbitrary, unjust human dictators who use the coercive power of the sword to force compliance to unrestrained autocratic decrees. Correct. Because there is no spiritually neutral government. There is no spiritually neutral president. There is no spiritually neutral constitution. They don't exist. Yeah. So if, if the government does not acknowledge God, the government becomes the God. Yes. But but it's there is no such thing. We've said this many times on this podcast. There is no such thing as a neutral public square mm-hmm. or a neutral government because there's no such thing as a neutral human being. Right. These are human enterprises. These are human institutions and human constructions. I saw somebody, another red herring here or straw man, um, I saw somebody who would kind of, a Christian who would be in disagreement with us, and I can't remember the guy's name, and I probably wouldn't even name him if I did because he's not. I don't think he's a big name, but on Twitter he had some following. But he said something like, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Saying there's a Christian nation is like saying there's a Christian cup of tea, which is a cute, it's a cute line, mm-hmm. but it's patently obvious, or it's patently false. Like if you just tear it apart for more than 30 seconds, think for a second, a cup of tea has no human component. Yeah. But a nation is made up of laws written by and enforced by mm. human beings. Was this person a Christian, you said? Yeah, it's a that, Christian. It's a Christian. Yeah. And he was sort of critiquing our our position here that we yeah. need explicit grounding in our... And he's saying, you know, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. It's like, it's not a Christian car, Wade. It's not a Christian Xbox. That's not a Christian lamp. Well, mm-hmm. okay, but governments and nations are yeah. made up of judicial branches, executive branches, legislative branches, military installations, all of which are the policies... Mm-hmm are uh, crafted by and instituted by and enforced by humans. Whenever you have a human element, yes. you're, you're, you're introducing something that is made in God's image, and that means it can or it may or may not be Christian. Yes. Um, and a government enforces moral yeah. uh, rules, moral ordinances on people. Yes, I, the whole idea of you can't legislate morality, that is complete fiction. Because that's what every law does. All laws do it. Every law represents some moral standard that is being imposed upon a the citizenry and d- done so with threat of penalty or uh, some reward of, of compliance. But you just can't say that that, that these have that they're, that they're neutral. Right. It's just let me I'll read one more sentence that can segue us into our next part here. but a good and just government will recognize the God of the Bible. The law of God that is revealed in the Bible as the ultimate authority. Yeah, amen. Uh, and, and I think you could say this. You said a good and just government, right? That was how you phrased that? Good and just government, is that what you said? Yes, a good I, and just government. A good and just government. So I'm just, I think this is helpful. It's been helpful for me philosophically to do this, and it might be for you, listener. Nations are like households. We've said that in at least one other podcast. Think about it that way. A good and just government, or a good and just household would acknowledge the God of the Bible and live in accordance with his rules and the way he made yeah. the world, right? You know that with households. A good and just family would do that. Yeah. The dad would be faithful to the mom. The mom would be faithful to the husband. The kids would obey the parents. They would pay their taxes. They would be orderly. They would not steal. You know a good and just household would do things that line up with how God made the world and his character. Wait, there's no such thing as a Christian household, just like there's no such thing as a Christian cup of tea. Exactly. See, so you know how you can tell how ridiculous this is when you shrink it down to household. But for some reason, I think because of our 
Um, I think maybe the way we've been taught in public schools about the supposed separation of church and state, I think just some sentiments that have kind mm -hmm. of gotten into our sentiments and phrases that have like gotten into our bloodstream. We just kind of assume that at the level of nation or state or uh, county or city, that somehow it's different once yeah. it gets there. Well, like, we can connect this to some other world worldview conversations that yeah. Wade and I have had because yeah. uh, you have a household of mom and dad and kids and extended family. Then you have the church is the household of God. Mm. Uh, that that language is explicitly used in Scripture. What what where the disconnect is is that we assume that is the largest possible household. Yeah. But biblically speaking, historically in the ancient world, um, cities were. You have, why do we call them the city fathers, mm -hmm. uh, or why do we call them the founding fathers? Mm -hmm. It is because these things assume that a nation or a larger collection of people, while may, they may not share. Um, there, there could be more than just one bloodline represented, mm -hmm. but they are households. So a nation, um, in, in in some very real ways that we fail to acknowledge, is a household. Now, when you get to the size of the United States and how complicated it is, then how do you operate as a household? That's the question. And there's yeah. a lot of people that are trying to answer that question. There's... Uh, conversations that's been happening in the Christian world with a lot of different leaders. Um, so for for some people, you this may be completely brand new to you. For some people, you're like, you follow it closely. Yeah. But um, there's some names here, uh, guys like, um, so that I'm, I've gotten in my hand a statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel. Um, Whoa, it, Christian nationalism. Yeah, Do we have like foreboding music that we can just like play over top of you saying that? It'd be like uh, in the, the Halloween theme song. There you go. Da, 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 yeah, da, 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 da. that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. So, but uh, so this this is a statement, and uh, I've I've gotten to know some of these guys. Yeah. Um, but what they're trying to do is assert some statement of unity that Christians of different uh, traditions can say. Yes, this represents my view. So that way we can advocate for something together mm -hmm. as Christians. Uh, you got um, the authors of this statement, James Silberman, uh, Dusty Devers, uh, with contributing editors, William Wolfe, Joel Webbin, Jeff Wright, Corey Anderson. Um, so they, they put together a statement, and um, you can check out the statement um, on, uh, what is the website? I think, yeah, I think they had a, I, if you just search the name of the document, I think it'll come yeah. up and they've shared it on social media yeah. plenty of times. Like the Twitter handle at CNG statement yeah. on Twitter. Um, now, I, we're not going to go through this in, in fine detail, but um, but this statement, I think, is a good faith effort. Um, and there may be some, you know, people would quibble with this point or that, and that's why you do it. That's why you do it. So that way you can put something out there to have a good faith dialogue using arguments from scripture and theology and history from various traditions to arrive at some consensus that is workable. Um, and uh, this is where I want to kind of push it back over to you, Wade, to, to, to lead us through the, where is the conversation right now? So there, there is this conversation that's happening with a lot of Christian leaders and lay people may be oblivious, but, you know, at the, at the leader level, there's, there's this really, you know, yeah. fierce, passionate, yeah, I'll call it a dialogue, maybe argument happening about what is the role of the Christian faith in our government? What is the role of the government in our Christian faith? Mm -hmm. How these things fit together? Um, yeah, so let me, okay, let me, thank you. Let me try to uh, set the table a little bit, and then I'll explain some of the terms as best I understand them. I'm not an expert, but I do follow this world pretty closely. I do have my convictions on it, uh, so... 
so I, I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you where I land, but I, I do want to just kind of give you the landscape first. I think the reason why this conversation is so hot right now is because for most of the 20th century, we were living in a world that was Christian in the sense that it was... Like a teacup? Yeah, exactly. It was teacup. No, it was permeated by uh, the world that Christian assumptions built. I mean, like the the... The classic example of this is Mayberry, you know, so if you watch Andy Griffith, there's there's this ordered community where people are not raping and pillaging for the most part. They're not, you know, you got Otis the town drunk, but for the most part, people are not just wantonly disobeying or flouting the law. They're not killing each other. It didn't look like what you know of prehistory, if you read prehistory, or, um, you know, pagan nations, whether they be like Nordic nations like the Vikings or, um, you know, Genghis Khan over in Mongolia. or like I mean, like, if you... It, it was... You look at most of 20th century America and a lot of 17th, 18th, 19th century in the West, and there were... There was relative order. Yeah. Um, there was... You know, massive sin and chattel slavery, uh, like serious violations of God's law. But we were living in a world that more or less was attempting to yeah. live in line with the God who actually. Made yeah, let me just interject something here as an acknowledgement. Um, the time period that would be represented by Mayberry would it be forties, thirties? Uh, Mayberry would have been the sixties, late late fifties, early sixties. Okay, so we're so Wade's referring to a period of time that uh, some might say. If that's if that's your your perfect state of Christianity back in the '60s or '50s, then I want nothing of it because they would be able to point to very real evils. Correct. So Jim Crow yeah. and racism and lynchings and things of this sort. Wade and I would both acknowledge there were real moral evils and outrages that happen at all times and throughout all all of the history of the world. Where the thing is is that we have to resist the utopian impulse to think like, well, if I can't have it perfect, then I'm, it's correct. I'm not going to make any attempt at all. We're talking about a time period where there was greater order than what we see now, and with all of its flaws and with all the things that are troubling about it, it was it represented something that is worth preserving and building and improving upon. Right. So I think a good way to put it might be, and this is I'm getting to I'm getting to why this conversation is hot right now. A good way to put it might be. Um, Martin Luther King awoke the conscience of most Americans. Most Martin average- Luther King. Yeah, he's a. Uh... Okay, you said I, I, when you said that I was thinking, is it Martin Luther or Martin Luther King? No, no, no Martin Luther King. I am talking <laughs> okay, about Martin, Martin Luther King. King. Okay. In this podcast, you're more likely to probably hear Martin Luther most of the. But I am talking about <laughs> Martin Luther King. Died in 1968, assassinated. Uh, so uh, Martin Luther King awoke the conscience of most Americans because most Americans had still saturated in their consciences, even if they weren't themselves indwelt yeah. by the Holy Spirit. Their names aren't in the Book of Life, maybe. But their 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 minds, their thinking, their consciences were saturated by the worldview of the Bible. And that's yeah. why they could see images of guys getting, uh, people getting hosed by Bull Tanner, I think his name mm-hmm. was, the, or, or people... Uh, the 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 black kids at the Emmett Woolworth Till. Emmett Till the black kids at the Woolworth counter who got like salt poured on them and milk poured on them and mm-hmm. water and the average American Christian could see such images and be awakened to yeah. what became the civil rights movement because of those Christian assumptions right so Martin Luther King Jr. was appealing to the conscience exactly and the sense of a right and wrong exactly and so, so he talked about justice and he was appealing to some standard that everybody assumed to be true and people knew whether or not we were upholding it or falling short of it. Correct. 
And, and he's actually, by the way, just ancillary thing here, he's actually a good example, I think, of how somebody who may not even themselves be born again can appeal to the standard of the actual God who actually exists and do it effectively as a leader. Because I'm not convinced from what I know of him that he, that he was truly himself born again. Uh, yeah, another, we would say the same thing about Donald Trump. It's exactly, not a racist thing exactly, or a political thing. Exactly. Donald is, Trump is... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. I, 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 think I, I, I want the listener to hear that we're, we're being fair. Exactly. And we're so, being fair because we have a standard of what fair means. Correct. <laughs> it means we correct sin wherever we see Correct. It. So Donald Trump, I absolutely believe, I have no evidence to think, is a born-again Christian. And yet his overturning Roe v. Wade in accordance with... Or his, his appointing Supreme Court justices who enabled the overturning of Roe v. Wade is in accordance with the yeah. God who made the world. Anyway, all that to say, 50s, 60s, 70s, all, we're all the way through the 20th century in, in the United States, at least. I mean, further back than that, 18th, 19th, 20th century, there were the, um, Christian assumptions that formed our moral uh, view of the world. Okay. Then you get to like the last 20 or 30 years and the massive upheaval of overturning those Christian assumptions to where nobody in public office is ever allowed to say that such and such a thing is bad because God said so. Mm -hmm. Nobody can ever say that. The massive upheaval, I think, has caused a lot of Christians to want to sort of reassess, figure out, oh my gosh, how do, how do we figure this out again? How, how do we figure out how to be Christians as citizens, as public office holders, as... Because basically we were... We were all kind of existing in this Christianized world mm -hmm. and enjoying the fruits of that Christianized world with Christian moral assumptions, and now that's all gone. Yeah. It's like we were living in a house, and you're say, say like 200 years ago, your dad built a house, family grew up in it, the house burns down, daddy's dead. Right. And you're like, we used to have a house, but... We have no idea how it got here. How do you build a house? Where like, does this house come from? What, where, like, what what's do we a do? roof? What's a exactly? That's a that's a good analogy. So what's a roof? What's a somebody show me how to make a blueprint here? I don't know anything. Yeah. And that's kind of where we are. So that conversation of Christian nationalism and uh, faithful presence that you might have seen on Twitter and any of these like what does it even mean to be a Christian and a citizen or a Christian and office holder? All these conversations are happening because of that because we're all uh, on some level confused about what to do. Okay, with that being said, I think a fair summary of Christian nationalism, which in its principle uh, I hold, uh, and I'm fine with the label for myself, I just know it comes with baggage. So you can call me a Christian nationalist, and that's totally fine. Uh, and depending on what you mean, you're probably right. But well, I think we need to define what the word is. Okay, so yeah, that, that's where I was going. So Christian nationalism, I think a, a fair summary of the, the sort of like baseline like, this is what the sport even is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Canadian football is different from American football, but I got to have something to tell my kid when he's like, what's football? It's okay, yeah. there's this oblong ball, you throw it, you try to get to the end zone. That's what I'm doing here with Christian nationalism. And here it is. The 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 sort of essential component is um, government and laws should explicitly be grounded in the God of Jesus Christ. Government and its laws, its legal structures, should be explicitly, by name, in word, mm -hmm. grounded in the God of Jesus Christ. Okay, well, I, I want to do two things. I want to ask you what, because I, I was like, what what Christian could possibly argue with that? But then second, I've got um, from this Christian nationalism yeah. statement from these guys, I, I can read you their definition and we can interact with that. Absolutely. But, but I'd love to hear what you have to say as far as what would, like what you said just seems so... 
so patently, obviously, Christian, godly, good. What might somebody say is an objection to what you just said? Yeah, and I think... Uh, so yeah, I agree. It could seem like, well, who could object to it? But there are people, thoughtful people, Christians who believe their Bibles and don't want to doubt their Bibles. I mean, these are good guys who would object to it in this way. I I, I think this would be their primary objection. To do that, to explicitly ground your constitution or your, your city governance or your, uh, your, your state structures in the God of Jesus Christ or in the Bible comes with a ton of baggage, Wade, that you are not acknowledging. Um, And that baggage looks like the Inquisition. That baggage looks like the state now saying, well, hey, since we've got Jesus on our side, we can, all you Baptists who don't want to baptize your babies, we can drown you in the river, which, I mean, Mm -hmm. did actually happen in in a few cases. So I think that's... that's So the the unintended consequences of some bad actor seizing the levers of power to enact their very unique, super hyper-specific expression of Christianity yes. and imposing on everybody, killing people who disagree. Yes, and that, that the unintentional, the unintended consequence of a believer doing it from uh, his super-specific applications of his Christian doctrine and an unregenerate person taking office and pretending to be a Christian, yeah. but hey, I've got Jesus on my side, so I can do whatever I want. So and those are valid? Well... Are they valid concerns, do you think? I would say no in the truest sense of the word valid. Okay. Um, and what I mean by that is, this is, this is an old axiom, um, misuse does not, uh, <laughs> what is it, Mis, misuse? Misuse do- does not negate proper use. Right. There you go. So here's what I would say. I would <laughs> say that- I had a friend of mine uh, just text me that in a group chat earlier today. Wow. But, but uh, this guy's a Latin nerd, and uh, so he- He sent it in Latin. He, he did it in Latin, but uh, I, it's a distraction. So keep okay, going. <laughs> so I would say while while I understand that historical argument, and I acknowledge that men with civil power—mayors, governors, presidents—have you know um, civil magistrates have done bad things in the name of Jesus Christ. That is essentially the same as saying, because I know that drunk dad over there, that alcoholic drunk father who beats the snot out of his kid, because I know that happens, I am not going to spank my kid. It, it, yeah. It's saying here, here is this instance where the thing you're advocating for has been done poorly, done badly, done evilly maybe. Therefore, the thing is wrong. Yeah, The thing is inherently wrong. And that's just, it's a logical fallacy. Uh, and I don't think it's biblical. I, I, the reality is the Bible assumes there is an objective standard of good and evil. That objective mm-hmm. standard is the God of the Bible himself. It's his character. Mm-hmm. We can't and shouldn't say, well, Caesar, you decide what's good and evil. Right. Yeah, you, yeah. You sure, decide. Sure. Yeah. So, I, so I, would, I would say yes and amen to all that you just said. For those that would raise that objection— um, they're not stupid. Correct. It, it is a it is a need for guidance to think through what one's logical objections may, uh, or what what they may just have arise within their own heart as they consider these things, because um, where people are emotional thinkers, and yeah. so they need help because like we have a rational God who is rational, consistent. Um, mm-hmm. So we we need to be able to. To think through these things, and so that, that I love that principle. Um, misuse does not negate proper use, right? And so, 
those those are scenarios that could happen. They happen. There are things that happen in history, and terrible things happened as a result. So we want to be able to answer that objection rationally, logically, in such a way that. Um, but as you as you demonstrated, that does not overturn the principle at stake. It's, yeah, and so I guess in that sense, it's valid. If I would, if if you were to ask me that again, I could answer it this way. You know, is that concern valid? It is valid historically. That did historically happen. But as an argument against yeah. having explicit Christian governance, yeah. no, it is not valid in that sense. Yeah, we throw the baby out the bathwater. Right. Uh, without the uh, ba- throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's how we handle problems. So we say. Here's an abusive husband, therefore the, the husbands should not be head of the home anymore. Right. You have an abusive pastor, well, therefore uh, you have a pastor that, uh, you know, needs to, you know, only do what everybody else tells him to do, but he cannot exercise authority legitimately. These things are not legitimate arguments, although the people that are making them, they're emotional thinkers. Right. And so there's, there's a need for the guidance to get through the issue while still... So we're providing instruction. It's it's patiently teaching through an objection to get to um, some resolution and consensus. And of course, that doesn't mean people are going to agree. But I think it's you know we're acknowledging what people are going to how people are going to object to this because it's these things are so foreign. We're we're so far removed from any like really um, comprehensive, theologically rich and rigorous. Uh, political theology, theology right. of government and authority. We're so far removed from that. Where these things just seem completely out of the blue, foreign, scary. Um, so yeah. So are are there a couple of different? Are yes, there any there varieties? Of- yes, yes, there are. So, um, so I think there is a version of this that leans heavily on Thomas Aquinas and natural law. And I think, as best I can tell, that's Stephen Wolf who wrote the case for Christian nationalism. Um, that would be his sort of tack is to defend these things uh, from theological principles that can be observed in Scripture, but then also to allow natural, what you can observe in nature, what you can observe in human nature, what you can observe in the ordered world and how God's built the world, allow that to substantially also inform yeah. the kind of Christian nation you So work. it's like the uh, the murder argument that I was asking about earlier. Sort of. I, I So I think... I think almost all Christian nationalists would, of any stripe would say, and by the way, this may be a good point for me to say, the reason why I, the label, I understand the problems with it is because nationalist, nationalist itself, unfortunately, has negative history. So most, most obviously in the Nazis, it was the nationalist socialist party. And so yeah. I think that's where, you know, you could The call, label has baggage. Right. And so you could, I'm not going to let that scare me away from using it, however if somebody could just give me a magic wand and wind back the clock and I could come up with a better name, I would. I would come up with a better name because of the word nationalist and what it conjures up in people's minds. Anyway, there's a... And who is Stephen Wolf? Why, why, so you, why is his name significant? His name is big because he wrote kind of the, the, the big manifesto, I guess you could say, the case for Christian nationalism. Canon Press published it early this year, or it might have been last year. I'm sorry, I think yeah, it was last 2022. Year, towards the end of last year. So um, I, I'm... Almost positive Stephen is a Presbyterian. Um, not to be confused with William Wolfe. Right, correct. Not, I don't think they're related or anything. Um, but so that that book published by Canon Press and Stephen, that's one uh, case for having a an explicitly Christian nation. And that case, I think, rests more, more heavily, more substantially on natural law and sort of 
um, additional principles gleaned from the Bible and observed in nature more than on explicit biblical teaching. The My own uh, sympathies would be more with, and, and I think this is just easier to demonstrate on ground that is easier to stand on, the Bible itself, would be for what Doug Wilson calls mere Christendom. Um, and that's his book, I think, just came out or is is coming out. But he's been using that verbiage for, I think, years. I mean, I think I first heard it from him before COVID. He okay. was using the phrase mere Christendom. And the idea there is the simplest. So I think he's playing on C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. Right, right, sure. And C.S. Lewis in that book uses the imagery of Christianity is this big house and inside the house are many different rooms. There's the I think he would even say the Catholic room and the Eastern Orthodox room and the Methodist room and the Anglican room. And I'm just trying to get people into the foyer. I'm trying to argue them into the foyer and then they can figure out which room. I, I think that that imagery has problems for, yeah, it for does. doctrine. Um, it, it kind of sounds like we're assuming like it's like the old elephant. You've yes, got the exactly. Trunk, the ear, the foot. Exactly. <laughs> we're, you know, we would say one of those rooms, like, like there's an objective truth. So one is going to be right and the other is yeah. wrong. However, in the case of mere Christendom, I think what Wilson's advocating for, and I, and I think this is pretty, pretty easy to demonstrate from, from the Bible as, as desirable is a government, a constitution, um, a culture even that says, because the God of Jesus Christ is real and because he has made us and governs the world in a certain way, therefore, this is our Bill of Rights. Therefore, this is how police arrest people. Therefore, this is how we punish criminals. We do all of it because the God of Jesus Christ made the world and governs it in this way. Yeah. But that that mere Christendom then does not um, punish individual doctrinal distinctives and it doesn't demand that individual citizens be Christians. So a mere Christendom would allow for mosques. I mean, as best I can understand it. And I certainly would would advocate that religious freedom is itself a Christian value. Yeah, I've heard Wilson argue that too. Um, And I think like with the the a simple case could be made just from Romans 14 about matters of Mm -hmm. conscience. We have to recognize that I mean God God himself wrote it, wrote it into scripture. Paul taught it in Romans 14 that you have Christians of good faith that can be in error, but be in error in a way that is to the glory of God. You can eat yes. to the glory of God. You can abstain to the glory of God. One is in error. The other would not be in error. But there is a principle at hand of, you know, like Baptists and Presbyterians, yeah. like credo, pedo, baptism. We can't both be right. Right. But I, I, I can... I can hang out with and have no Correct. problem with my Pado Baptist brothers and sisters because because we know it's like you like you and I disagree in good faith. Correct. And in a Christian nation, it would be legal to be wrong about baptism. Right. In a Christian nation, it would be legal to be wrong about the the triune nature of God. So you could be a Unitarian in a Christian nation in the Christian nationalist sense. No one's going to come to your door and arrest you. Um. But we are going to arrest you if you rape somebody because the God who is triune has said you can't do that. Right. And we're going to explicitly grab yeah, that. Yeah, we, we, we'll get to that in a second. So like, if I'm, if I'm summarizing what you've said so far, there's two, like, extremely broadly oversimplified, two camps or two impulses. Those two impulses are what are the presuppositions upon which we build our... our uh, political theory of Christianity and government. 
One is explicitly the law of God, revealed right. in Scripture, acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. The other is Scripture affirms, but the presupposition is things that can be observed in nature, natural law, and that's the Aquinas, the Thomistic argument. Is that, is that um, fair? And there you were describing the two different kinds of Christian nationalism? Is that The two impulses. Okay, so I do think that's probably fair, other than I would say even Stephen Wolf would want it to be grounded explicitly in Christ. In Christ, but who is Christ? Right, yeah. So, yes. So let me, let me, if you can visualize it this way, okay? Within all of Bible-believing Christians right now who are doing this kind of thinking and doing this kind of, within all of them, I would say on, if you want to picture it on the left side of the chalkboard here are all the guys who want governance and laws to be grounded explicitly in the God of Jesus Christ. So on one mm-hmm. side of the chalkboard, that's Christian nationalists of all kinds. That's theonomists of all kinds. That's We want the structure of society to be explicitly grounded in the God of Jesus Christ. On the right side of the chalkboard of Bible-believing Christians who are trying to do political theory and trying to think this stuff through, on the right side of the chalkboard, just picture me drawing all of these people of every kind who basically say, we want laws, they would acknowledge we want laws and governance that are godly, Right. However, grounding them explicitly in the God of Jesus Christ, grounding them explicitly in Jesus, comes with a lot of unintended consequences. And so we shouldn't have them be explicitly tied to. Yeah. That's sort of the two. That's how I would view this whole thing. And then in the on the left side of the chalkboard, where I've got all these people who are following. Um, the, the wanting wanting laws and governance to be explicitly grounded in Christ, there are different stripes of Christian nationalism, and the two that you're going to interact with most in social media and in the landscape of today, I think, are mere Christendom, Doug Wilson's, mm-hmm. and Thomistic Christian nationalism, yeah, which would be Stephen Wolf's, which is ironically both books published, published by, by Canon Press. Press, yeah, yeah, and and I think probably Doug would say Stevens could be grafted into his. Yeah, it, the thing is, like, this is the, the the these are important presuppositions to get right because of there are unintended consequences either way, right? And so we want to account as best we can for them. Um, Wade and I would we would be um, let me take we're, we're we see this the same. We want right. our the government of our country to be explicitly grounded in Jesus Christ. And as revealed in the Holy Scriptures, yeah, and you and I are on God. the left side of that diagram. Yeah. So let me let me read to you. Here's a the definition of Christian nationalism that was provided by this this statement. This is a draft version, um, but these these are good brothers that are that are putting it together. This is their 2.0 version. Christian nationalism is a set of governing principles rooted in Scripture's teaching that Christ rules as supreme Lord and King of all creation who has ordained civil magistrates with a delegated authority to be under him over the people to order their ordained jurisdiction by punishing evil and promoting good for his own glory and the common good of the nation. And there are references here. That sounds very similar to London Baptist chapter 24, but also uh, Westminster um, Mm -hmm. Confession. So I read that and I'm like, that sounds great to me. Right. Um, And I know there's a lot of there's a lot of nitpicking about words and, and things like that, but that I, I think that that is a good proposition put forth and is worth worthy of consideration. 
Yes. So all the guys on that side of that divide, on on our side of that divide, we would look at the people who don't want it to be explicit. And I think, by the way, this is a better way to think of the difference between the G3 guys. So G3 is a conservative, reformed Baptist organization uh, of good guys who believe the Bible, who do who appear to not agree with and mass all of them, apparently. I mean, as best I can tell, with Christian nationalism. So I would look over at those guys. And I would say, we want it to be explicit. We want the United States and every government to be explicitly grounded in the God of Jesus Christ because that's how the world actually is, and we can't deny it. We can't deny. If, you, if we do what you guys want and we just try to, without naming Jesus, make the government as ordered and godly as possible, eventually somebody else is going to come behind us and just... Who, who said that murder's wrong? Who said that stealing's wrong? Who said mm-hmm. that lynching's wrong? Who said that if we don't ground it in something transcendent? Okay, but then they would look back at me and they would say, Wade, that's got a lot of baggage. That's got, you have no idea mm-hmm. what you're talking about. It's never worked. God didn't make the world for, for it to function like that. Caesar was never supposed to name the name of Jesus as why he's... Mm-hmm. So I, I'm trying to represent their side as fairly as I can, but on that side would be many, 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 many real Bible-believing Christians. I just fundamentally think they're wrong about the fact that government has to name its God. It has to. Government must name its God. So in the United States, in God we trust, but that I like w- Thomas Jefferson... Uh, being a deist, correct, could affirm that. Correct, and I so I would want you know if I if you dropped me back in the 18th century again, and I were you know among the founding fathers, I would argue for a more explicitly Christian set of founding documents. Now they are fairly Christian, and they certainly have through and through Christian assumptions. Um, but I would want them to be more explicitly grounded. And by the way, had they been. And this is a little bit of counterfactual, meaning it's history you can't double check me on. But I, I've got a sneaking suspicion that had our documents and our structures been even more explicitly Christian, uh, our tools for demolishing chattel slavery might have been put to use more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me um, let me throw some uh, questions and objections your way. Okay. Um, these are things I think the you know, casual listener might be wondering as we've gone through this and I'm, we're a little over an hour, so we'll have to make this a bit of a lightning round if we can. Whenever you and I talk about the law of God, what are we talking about? Are we talking about, uh, can't have blended fabrics, uh, and you have to put a parapet on your roof? What is that? What are we getting at? So all Christian, all reformed Christians, uh, for the most part hold to, um, the, the different distinctions or classes within God's law. So there are moral, there, there is a moral law um, codified in the Ten Commandments. The, the Fourth Commandment about not breaking the Sabbath has a little, these aren't um, completely airtight. Yeah. There are, the Fourth Commandment has a little bit of a uh, ceremonial component to it. However, there's moral law like don't murder, don't lie, don't steal. And those things are grounded in God's character, and they are binding on all people, all places, everywhere, unto eternity. Second table, first table, could be a, you know, a way around that because I know that's in the this statement here. There's 
So what I would say, yeah. So what I would say is the 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 tables of the Ten Commandments both contain moral laws. The duties within those moral laws might be pointed in different directions. Right. So you know, the first commandment to love God, uh, the second commandment to have no idols, uh, the third commandment to to love God's name, honor God's name. Those are moral. They're pointed towards God primarily. The honor mother and father, uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet. Those are also moral. They're pointed primarily, though, at my neighbor. So moral in nature. Those ones are never going to be abrogated. They're never going to be taken away. Okay, then there are, Reformed Christians acknowledge, civil laws. They're civil in that they were meant for the people of Israel, for God's covenant people, and they involved... um, Criminal sanctions for letting your ox gore somebody, even though you knew he was violent. Uh, criminal sanction for um, if you're walking around on your roof, if somebody walk around on your roof and they fall off because you didn't have a, a guardrail on your roof. Well, that's you're you're liable. Mm-hmm. They were those sort of civil laws, the kind of things we have in our own civil codes, speed limits, and yeah. Um, so they were sanctions by the that God commanded the civil government of Israel to have and to enforce. Then there are ceremonial laws, and those would be like the sacrifices, the, the, blood and bull, the blood of bulls and goats being spilled for your sins. The ceremonial law, that third category, Jesus has fulfilled, and therefore we don't have them anymore, period. The moral law we'll always have, and it'll always be binding. But the civil law, that middle category... Um, what a theonomist would say, and and I'm going to go ahead and say, and somebody else might argue with this later, quibble with this later, but whatever. I'm going to say that everybody who wants the government to be explicitly grounded in the God of Jesus Christ, like me and you, is in some sense a theonomist. The theonomist is like the big, broad category of which Christian nationalism of different stripes would be subsets. But the theonomist would say that that civil law can inform and should inform our civil laws in the 21st century and our grandkids' civil laws in the 22nd yeah. century. You're saying inform. And I think right. it's, that, that, that's a good way to put it because we're not saying you need to copy and paste, Correct. you know, you know, Leviticus into, you know, the state of Ohio's, you know, civil law code or whatever. You have to, the, the language I've heard is general equity. Yeah. Uh, so it's, what is what is an equivalent? Yes, princi- like principally. So the idea of a parapet is on your roof. It's like there's what is the moral principle embedded in that case law? So uh, thou shalt not kill is a it, it it is a command, but it is also a category that contains lots of principles, both positive and negative, like, like affirmations and denials, things you can do or cannot do. Um, about valuing human life. That's the principle embedded there. So we would argue from that commandment that you cannot abort a child and from that same commandment that you should make your home safe right. whenever guests are there. You don't want to, you know, have your, you know, like uh, let's say a, an electrical cover, like just hanging loose so a child can come by and touch it and get shocked, Correct. you know, that sort of thing. That's that's general equity. It is applying in our day, in our context, the principle, the equity from the original law to our time. Correct. So God has revealed his character in his laws, and therefore that same character has should have bearing on our laws today. That would be, uh, the, the, I think, the broadest possible way I could put the theonomist position, and I am a theonomist, in the sense that I want God's law to inform our laws today. I will also say, by the way, I've used this line before, but I think it's fair. 
everyone really is a theonomist. It's just a matter of what's the theos and what's the namas. Yeah. And what I mean by that is theos is God, namas is law. There is a God and a law f- that flows from the character of that God in every culture mm-hmm. inevitably. We have blasphemy yeah. laws today. Mm-hmm. And that pitcher. That pitcher he, broke, he, he violated the blasphemy. Yeah. Law. Now, it may not be written in a code somewhere, but it is It is part of our social imaginary, right. you know, like the way that we think about and imagine what is good for society. Correct. He broke it. Correct. So there you go. So that's 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 theonomist or the law of God, how it should be applied today, is would be our position. Um, all right. So separation of church and state. Um, so the people use this a lot. The the separation of church and state, that phrase is nowhere in our actual founding documents. Um, the establishment clause states that Congress will, will not make a law uh, about any establishment of religion. And so what, that, what that's essentially saying is there's not going to be a federal church. We don't have a national church the way England did or mm-hmm. does still uh, and that Germany did. And so Congress is not going to establish itself a government church. Well, great, that's fine. I think there's nothing unbiblical about that or ungodly about that. But that that does not mean it, it's it's now talked about as though that means that government should assume that there is no God. It should not assume any God, and it should just make make its laws independent of any spiritual teaching. Mm-hmm. And that's impossible. It's every law, like you said, is going to legislate morality. So whose morality? Which God's morality? And if there is no God explicitly named, um, as in the God of the Bible, which he has revealed his law to us, then it could be the God of the state itself. Exactly. And it is that in that is where you get just the arbitrary whim of whoever happens to wield the you know the power in that system. Right. And even at the time of the adoption of our constitution, which has the establishment clause in it, there were st- there were still several states that had state churches. So that you know, the yeah. state itself, the the uh, one of the thirteen original colonies had themselves, in at least some cases, state religion, uh, state churches, and the Congress and the constitution um, that was adopted did not outlaw that. Mm-hmm. It was it was essentially saying we're not going to have a national church. Great. Let's not have a national church. I agree with the First Amendment there. Fine. It's great. Yeah. Well, we have the separation of church and state as a principle that I think is good. We don't want to have, you know, like a particular version of Presbyterianism be the law of the land. Right. But you cannot, so you can separate church and state, but you cannot separate God and state. Right. Because every, every, everybody's a theonomist. I like the way you say that. There is a God of the system. And if the God, there is no God acknowledged above the system, then the, the state itself, but there, you cannot just say it's neutral. So the idea of a secular, uh, neutral government that we seem to assume in our society is is not true. So you have to have some acknowledgement of God. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can see this in, in public schools. There's still prayer in public schools. It's just the God that changed and the nature of the prayer that changed. Yeah. I mean, your kids are, if you go, if your kids are being, uh, are in a public school, there is some version of prayer that is happening there. It's just not the kind that you would picture with hands folded and mm-hmm. they're, God is great, God right. is good, I mean, something it, like that. But the, the equivalent activity to a God of the system is still happening. Yeah. Because you can't, like you said, you can't separate God and state. Well, what about those that would say, well, Christians are just horrible whenever they're in power. And so Christians are at their best whenever they lay down their power and... Uh, 
you know, to be more Christ-like or something. Christians can be terrible when they do any manner of things. That doesn't mean they shouldn't do the things. I've seen Christians who are terrible drivers. Should we all not drive? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, so again, misuse does not negate proper use. Um, human beings themselves are inherently uh, prone to uh, the misuse of power, which is why the separation of powers is enshrined in our documents, our founding documents, because the Christian worldview of our founders, even if the, even the ones who weren't themselves born again, they had Christian assumptions underpinning their thought processes. And so that's why uh, we have a separation of powers in which no one man or no one institution can govern the whole thing. Yeah. So that's our, our, our United States government recognizes any human, Christian or non-Christian, when given unlimited power, can misuse it. Sure. But to say that because I've, I have a few historical examples of a Christian who was terrible when he was in power, therefore I'm going to let Joe Biden do whatever he wants is, is asinine. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. So, uh, well, how about, uh, can you address the, we'll do this, the last one on this section, the, the nationalist that, yeah, it's a scary sounding word. Uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, I don't I don't love the word. I'm not going to run from it because I just don't like other people dictating what language I can or can't use. But if when I'm given if I could be given the ability to craft a new phrase, a new label, I would because in the past, yes, nationalist um ha, has been just primarily through its connotation uh in the Third Reich in Germany. It conjures up in people's minds, you know, sort of the goose stepping uh, angry, like fascist kind of state follower who's just going to do whatever the dictator tells him to do. And so people are like, oh my gosh, Christian nationalists, there's going to be a, that, that conjures up in their minds almost like a, like a Hitler who's just wearing a cross and who's got his army of brown shirts knocking at the door of every, mm -hmm. you know, house and making sure people are reading the correct translation of the Bible or something. And that's not what anybody who actually uses the label would want um, they would all call tyranny evil. But that's, I think that's one of the unfortunate parts of this debate is that that word has so much um, sort of baggage, just yeah. imagery, baggage of imagery around it. It's a boogeyman label. Yeah. And, and it was originally ascribed by opponents, like people that wanted to pejoratively assign some definition to people that believe the way we do as a way to scare people off of the, off, and, when I first heard the term Christian nationalism and the way it was used, I was like, yeah, that sounds terrible. And it was, you know, people were kind of afraid to wear it until some people just like, well, that's what they're calling us. Let's go with it. And they just, they own the label. Right. But the way I, the way it is actually being used by the people who want an explicitly Christian nation and explicitly Christian laws, nationalist there simply means Nations are real. They're things. Like, they actually exist. So what kind do you want? You want a pagan one? Or mm -hmm. you want a Christian one? And in yeah, that you want Christian nationalism or pagan nationalism? Exactly. And that's, there is going to be some there, God. Exactly. There is, you're going to have some kind of nation. You're going to have some kind of legal structures. You're going to have some kind of governance. What's it going to be? Pagan yeah. or Christian? Uh, or Islamic. So, yeah. so there you have it. Um, as we try to wrap up here... Uh, can we can I, can we just give a couple of uh, scriptures here? Yeah. Um, 
I, I've got one quote from Irenaeus that I'll read, but if if we can each read the two of us, Romans 13, 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, um, I think it might be helpful for people to hear God's word in their ears and let it uh, thread the the way that we're thinking this through. Um, I'll take Romans 13, 1 through 7, uh, if you can read that Second Peter passage there. Mm -hmm. So Romans 13, the Apostle Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And I'll just, my, my one comment I'll make on that massive uh, treatise there on our behavior and what it's supposed to be to the state, the one comment I'll offer is, uh, Michael and I are both in agreement on this, don't do the let's go Brandon thing. Don't do that. If you're a Christian, don't revile Joe Biden. Joe Biden's a bad president. I dare say he's a fool. That said, we are not to revile him. Yeah, um, we should honor the office even if we don't respect the op- occupant. Correct. And that's a that the, these the commands in scripture they they got to mean something, right? Um, and so there's a we're being admonished and exhorted from scripture to um, well I'll just continue First Peter two to be subject to the subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Mm. And there's, a, there's an assumption there that this, these are legitimate, but there are, there's limitations imposed by God. Correct. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, not supreme overall, but supreme over that government. Correct. Or to governments, or excuse me, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do good and to praise... Sorry, man, I can't read today. To governors sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. They do sometimes in our day punish those who do good. So right. It was a well, Freudian the, slip. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's the thing. It's like there, there will be... The, 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 the scriptures in no way assume that the, the governor is going to do this accurately mm-hmm. or uh, in a godly way, and sometimes they will invert moral order. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, just as God holds every human being accountable for his or her sin, God will do the same for rulers and authorities, and they will be held to account for their governance. Yeah. And that applies to every husband over his home, every elder over his church, and every civil ruler. There are, we are accountable for our leadership. Right. Um, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Mm. Live as people who are free. We talked about this earlier. Mm-hmm. We get freedom from the scriptures and from the God of the Bible. Correct. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So we are we clearly have commands from Scripture to obey the actual civil authorities that God really has ordained. And to put it bluntly, despite my disagreements with him, which are down to the floor, God has called me to submit to and honor Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I 
teach my kids that we only honor the, the guy when we agree with him is to teach them to disobey scripture, is yeah. to teach them to disobey God. Um, so yeah, we you train to, your children to call the president, President Biden. Yeah, exactly. So we do that at my house. We call him President Biden. We call him Governor uh, DeWine. Um, we refer to people with the title as a way of, with our mouths, speaking the reality that God has ordained him. God ordained him, just like he ordained the imperfect Cyrus the Great, or he ordained the imperfect Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. God ordained these imperfect rulers, sinful rulers, uh, and 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 I'll vote against him in 2024, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll do so joyfully. However, should he win again, we'll do the same thing in my house. Yeah, and God will execute his justice for as a as a final accounting of their rule. Right. And we also pray for him the way scripture tells us to, and we pray for his repentance. And I tell my kids specifically, I shrink it down to the issue of abortion because it's easy for kids to understand. Mm-hmm. But I say in our house, we're going to pray that president, we've done this a number of times, we're going to pray that God grants President Biden repentance for wanting it to be legal to murder babies. Yeah. And we do it respectfully. And nobody in my house will ever spit on a picture of him or roll their eyes when we, t- I'm like, this is, this is real and serious and grave, and we should talk about it that way. That's good. Um, okay, so I've got, I'll just read one Irenaeus quote, and then we'll give some uh, pastoral counsel, some logs and specs here, if we've seen any in our churches. Um, this I, I'll just read a short bit of Irenaeus, the church father from the second century. He was a disciple of Polycarp, if I remember right, who was a disciple of John. So this is a guy two generations removed from your Bible. And he wrote, It is not Satan who is appointed the kingdoms of this world, but God. And the word also says by Solomon, in Proverbs here he's quoting, by me kings reign and princes administer justice. He also says, God imposed upon mankind the fear of man, for mankind did not acknowledge the fear of God. He did this in order that being subjected to the authority of men and kept under restraint by their law, mankind might obtain some degree of justice. They might exercise mutual forbearance through dread of the sword. Earthly rule, therefore, has been appointed by God for the benefit of nations. It was not appointed by the devil. I'll stop there, but basically this is a a man very close to the time of our scriptures, the the writing of our scriptures, who is affirming the fact that the God of the Bible is the one in charge of the state, and he's made the state for a reason. The state is not an arbitrary institution that just kind of cropped up in the evolution of human history. God made kings for a reason. And ultimately, that reason is to punish those who do evil and uphold and praise those who do good. When it does that, it is doing what it's supposed to do, just as when a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, washes her by the word, and leads his family well, he's doing what God ordained him to do. And bad fathers do not negate the institution of fatherhood. Bad husbands do not negate the institution of marriage. uh, And bad presidents don't negate the institution of governance. Yeah. You want to take us out with some reasons for hope? Yeah, yeah. Um, Let me just offer this. Pray for um, the America that you want. So we are sons and daughters of the Republic. God has put this nation here for a reason, and I think we can all acknowledge, I know we acknowledge the imperfections of the United States. But I think we also can hopefully acknowledge the good and the beauty of the United States um, and the tools within itself to reform itself. There's a reason why chattel slavery fell in England and the United States as early as it did. 
It should have fallen earlier, but the tools of Christendom are able to reform itself. So pray that we would continue to to do that, that through um, repentance and faith in the God who actually exists, faith in Jesus Christ, we would continue to reform the United States and pray for it. Pray for godly leaders. Pray for leaders who are themselves regenerate, born-again Christians. Pray for leaders who will uh, allow us to live our lives and to have our church services and to lead our families well. And work hard in whatever capacity God's called you to as a mom or a husband, maybe an office holder someday, certainly as a voter and a citizen. Work hard for that Christian United States. Not in the sense that um, every last single person who holds office or is, is in our nation would be born again, though we certainly would love that. We don't anticipate that anytime soon. But in the sense that Christianity and the God of Christianity are the underpinning reality of what we do as a civic body. My, my hope is that as we all do this together as Christians, that we will see God's blessing on this land. And I believe that, and I have hope for that, because our God is real, and their God is not. Oh, 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 oh,